Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Hey, ho, shit shows. How's it going? Today, we are diving deep with a fellow shit show and one of my favorite podcast hosts, Erin Martin. So she is the host of the podcast Pink Shade. It's a a reality TV recap podcast. And y'all know I'm a reality TV junkie. So I had heard her talk about uh, that she had been raised in a cult, and she had also made a few comments in some episodes about Al-Anon or could tell that she had some familiarity with kind of the recovery world. So I reached out to her um, and asked her if she'd be on, and she agreed. And then it was like right after that, she just went dark, um, and she wasn't hosting the podcast. She was taking a break from the podcast and her co-host was just doing it. And based off what her co-host was saying, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, mental health issues. I just knew in my gut, I was like, she had some repressed trauma come to the surface. I just knew it. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I'm glad we waited a year because we have a lot uh, more content to work with. So Uh, But before that, I've been thinking about whether or not I want to bring this up. I prayed and meditated, and I decided that I do. So um, prior to me recording with Erin, we were talking about, I don't really know how it came up, but I was talking to her about how she deals with um, haters, like online. Because if you don't know, uh, the reality TV, like, fandom world is is rather fucking vicious. (laughs) Um laundry list trait three is that we are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. Now, I think that there's a lot of people out there that aren't adult children that don't like criticism. However, we really just up the ante. You know, we are terrified of personal criticism. For someone who's an adult child, before they put themselves out there on such a public forum, they need to think about whether or not you know, they're going to be able to to handle it without the criticism really derailing them. Because there's no way around it, right? You're going to get haters. I'm sure even the Dalai Lama has some haters. So I I thought about this prior to launching the pod. Would I be able to handle the criticism? I've always considered myself as someone with thick skin and who is not easily offended, but... This is uncharted territories for me, so you don't know how you're going to react until you get in it. And uh, surprisingly, I've received very little hate. Like, I I would have expected more. Most of it has rolled off my sleeve. Is that it? Rolled off my back, rolled off my sleeve. Um, but there's been a few things that I ha- I did react to. Or I don't know if react's not the wor- right word, but um, my inner world was uh, jarred by it but never lasting more than a few hours. Right after the interview, I saw that I had um, a new review on Apple Podcasts. And it was pretty damn rude, okay? I think it was less of a, uh, less feedback, more uh, personal 
attack, personal character assassination. Um, I'm not going to go into it. Um, that's not the point that I'm trying to make here. But I would like to say, though, that I am always open to receiving any form of feedback, constructive criticism, wide open, hit a girl up, emotional maturity and social skills, which this individual says that I'm lacking, is actually reaching out to somebody directly if you have such a strong or intense opinion rather than being a keyboard warrior. But that's besides the point. The point here that I'm trying to make is that I am not everyone's cup of tea. And the bigger point is that none of us are going to be everyone's cup of tea. And so many of us have spent our lives trying to be everyone's cup of tea, trying to be a tea that we aren't trying to be a million different types of tea, Earl Grey, mint, chamomile, you name it, and uh, and not necessarily being a tea that we even like. Um, and so that's actually something that Erin brings up in my conversation with her about just having all the various versions of herself, right? Erin at work, Erin at home, Erin at school. And so there's this quote in the Big Red Book. It says, we couldn't be our genuine selves, who we were meant to be. We molded a personality that could change at the drop of a hat, adapting to any situation. It took a lot of skill to survive, and our false self kept us safe in childhood. And so when I think about adult child recovery, uh, get ready for this one, guys. I think it's about becoming your authentic cup of tea, becoming a cup of tea that you love, becoming the cup of tea that other people were supposed to drink out of you. <laughs> this is getting weird. Um, and, and bringing that authentic cup of tea uh, every damn place that we go. So I feel like this is like when I, cup of tea, it was like when I went off that on that rant where I was like saying hitting, hitting rock butt instead of rock bottom. I was like, when did you hit your butts? Um, okay, let me, let me get it together here. So... Um, you know, obviously, we are all going to continue to heal and grow. However, what I would like to say is that this is the cup of tea you got for this podcast. Okay, guys, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not for everyone. And that's okay. You know, I have a very unique communication style. You know, I love to curse and I love to bring humor into heavy situations. Uh, this is me showing up each week as the same damn cup of tea for you all. And if I wasn't doing that, well, that would be people pleasing. And that would be so contradictory to the message that I am trying to drill in your head to unearth and live as your true self, as your true cup of tea. Okay, time to, to keep this show a moving. But first, so we have the the Boundaries Workshop this uh, Saturday, 1230 Eastern. It is Discovering Your Real Identity, Boundaries for Recovering Shit Shows. See link in bio for more about that. I want to give a shout out and a huge thank you for my newest Patreon members for my newest shit shows. Patreon is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. It's where you say thanks, Andrea. 
and you can find the link in the show notes and you could even sign up while you're listening to the episode. You know, let's let's do some multitasking, guys. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you to Eric, Cynthia, Julia, Kate, Jacob, Louisa, Schmooster. I'm interested in Schmooster. Koi, Mariana or Mariana, uh, Will, Jessica, and Jamie. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you all. Well, today's a real treat for me. I am joined by one of my favorite podcast hosts. She loves the trash TV, like me. Uh, she's the host of the Pink Shade podcast. Welcome, Erin Martin. Hey, how are you doing, Andrea? We meet face to face, Zoom to Zoom. Here we are. I asked Erin over a year ago, but then mm-hmm. um, she had a bit of a shit show come up. I was the shit show. Yes. yes. The shit show was me. Yes. We, we could talk a lot about that. That says recovering shit show. You should, she should get something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you did ask me a year ago and I was so like, yes, yes, yes. This is my jam. Like I'm so, and then it just shit hit the fan. And I had a, I had a real breakdown last year. Yeah. A real, real breakdown after, after, um, quite a journey in COVID. Mm-hmm. you know, through, through many things that I did not think would come up. And I think a lot of people went through things during the quarantine and during COVID and depending on how you reacted to it or how your town reacted or how your family reacted, like all of that was, was part of it, but it also it was a very internal struggle that I went through during that. And I, people joke about having an existential crisis, but I really think I did. <laughs> I really think I did. And I think that was part of being an adult child, which is why I have been really looking forward to talking to you today because the feeling of not being safe Mm. um, is profound in me and from being an adult child and not being safe during a pandemic and during a news cycle and doom scrolling adds to the core of just already not feeling safe. And that, that did something to me that my family didn't understand that my friends couldn't quite help me through. And so, yeah, we can dig into that. I don't know how you felt during it, but it was just like a real feeling of unsafety topped on unsafety on more unsafety. It was crazy. Well, the pandemic was the best thing that happened to me and everybody listening right now, because it allowed me a space to create this podcast. So let's just be honest. (laughs) There are gifts. There are gifts. Yes. Yeah. I was at home and I could create a podcast without my boss knowing. So that's the reality of the situation. Um, Yeah. So I shared with Erin before. So she, I had asked her to do it and then she took a break from her podcast and Mm -hmm. just what was being shared. It was like, I knew it. I was like, She's got some unresolved trauma that popped up. Mm-hmm. I could just tell. And also, so you've been sober for, what do you say, five years now? Um, I was sober for a little over seven years. Uh-huh. And then I had a wicked relapse in March of 2021. So I la- so quarantine happened March of 2020, right? 
That's what, mm-hmm. I mean, 2020 was the year. Mm-hmm. That's when we all like school was canceled. Life was canceled. You know, we're all going to die. Wuhan, whatever. It was like, what is happening? <laughs> I didn't even know. Mary Payne and Ooh, I. What? That's <laughs> woo, 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 uh, what? You know, and I have a husband who's very like, very loving and stable. And I know I sought him out for his loving, <laughs> loving personality and his, and his stability too. But, but during that whole catastrophe, he was very much like, everything's fine. It's going to be fine. You know, like, and that was his coping mechanism. And it really worked for him also golfing, you know, and mine was to be like, my hair's on fire. The house is on fire. Somebody talked to me, <laughs> talked to me all the time. Talked to me morning, noon, and night. I need yeah. to talk to someone who anybody, like I wanted to like scream. And like, I mean, we were doing podcasts through it. My co-host and I, Mary Payne, we're do, we were doing podcasts through it, especially on Patreon, where we were, we were talking about like our fears and mm-hmm. just, you know, just going through some shit. And as everybody did and does every day, everyone's on a different journey. And I, I truly feel that like, I don't think I'm the only person ever going through something. And that's a gift because then it Absolutely. helps me feel less isolated, but I did feel somewhat isolated during that time because I was reacting so strongly and I was, um, Also at the, I was also working on a real big project in 2021, which was a BBC production where I interviewed a lot of Jonestown survivors from the people's temple. Mm -hmm. And it turned into a project that I'm, I'm super proud of. It involved hours and hours and hours of interviews with survivors of what essentially is a mass was a mass murder Mm -hmm. slash suicide because all those, the kids involved in Jonestown and what I'm speaking of, I think everyone knows about, so I'm not going to explain it. You know, I think it's pretty shorthand. Now people understand what Jonestown and the people's temple was in Guyana and um, how everyone died. Hundreds and hundreds of people, almost a thousand people died at, on one day. And it was a lot of children and they were murdered. You know, they were injected. <clears throat> no children willingly commit suicide. You know what I mean? Like none of those children, it, it was not a mass suicide. There was a lot of murder going on. A lot of the adults were injected as well. And something about talking to these survivors, including Jim Jones son. Mm. um, And then another man who had, who saw his wife and his son Mm. get murdered and he was in the jungle and he ran. And it was like, I, I, something about that trauma was absorbed into me and it awoke things that happened in my childhood that I never really even acknowledged before, because I've talked for a long time. And just for your listeners, I've, I was born in a cult and we were there until I was like three and a half, four Kobu, the Kobu, the church of Bible understanding. It was run by a guy named Stuart trail, who was just as crazy as any cult leader you can imagine getting rich off of, you know, everyone having sex with, you know, the girls at the back stairs, all, all the stuff you, every cult leader is the same. Every single one. He was the same too. Now I was a kid. I didn't know what I was in. We were living communally in Manhattan. You know, we were, uh, I just thought that's the way life worked. You had like a thousand moms and a thousand dads and like all the kids were raised together. And then when we left, it was really traumatic because I was like an only child and it was just my mom and my dad and I, and I was like, what my mom, my dad and me rather, but it looking back on that in a different way, when I was doing this BBC project on Jonestown did something to me where it opened a box. Mm. And when that box was opened, I got chronic pain. 
That's exactly when I started getting chronic pain, which I still have, but I'm managing mostly through therapy, mm-hmm. which is incredible. I got really hardcore COVID. Uh, it was really quite um, like I was scared. Like I was actually very scared and like in bed for a month, you know, laying there thinking, I, I think I'm going to die, you know? So it was not like, Oh, no symptoms. It wasn't, it was just, it took me out and I was thrown into menopause immediately after COVID. So I had chronic pain, COVID. I was thrown into menopause at like 46. I was like, are you kidding me? Like old ladies in their corns. I mean, not, I, I shouldn't yeah. like use shorthand for my own podcast, but my, my, my co-host and I talk, we talk about like being old. We're not old, but we feel it because like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm like early onset, everything like my neck's not working. My, <laughs> and, then, and all of a sudden I'm like, fuck it. Like I was sober for so long. And then I started getting away from my community mm. and I had this horrible relapse on the heels of a medical emergency which was really, if I look back on it, really like an attempt to not be here anymore. Had you planned it out? No, I don't even really remember it. Um, It was about, it was like a one day uh, turned into like a week and then it, it trickled over maybe like a few months after that, but it was, it was severe. It was severe. Like I am, I pretty much almost died, you know? So after that, I just started isolating more mm. and I thought, what is happening here? Like I'm in recovery. I have a group of people. I have friends. I had a sponsor. I was um, very much a part of that life, but there was something that was isolating me. And I, it was this trauma mm-hmm. that came up and I thought, I can't talk to anyone about this. I have to still be professional. I'm a public person you know, with my, with podcasts and radio things. And I, I, at that time, I think I was still doing the Jenny McCarthy show on Sirius XM, but I I was like, I can't tell anybody about this. I just have to talk about it in a fun way or a funny way or a serious way, but serious on other people's behalf. But I, I'm not going to really bring up my real pain Mm. with anyone, including my own immediate family. And so that's where substances come in. I think we all know that. And that's also due to adult child stuff creeping up. That's totally unresolved. And here I was thinking I'd gone through the ACOA group. I had done half the workbook, not the other half. So there you go. That tells you everything you need to know about what happened to me. And um, it, it, it was a gift that I didn't actually die in 2021 because I, there was uh, no lack of really kind of giving up on my part. You know, and my co-host saw that my, my good friend saw that my family started to see it really seriously. And I decided to check myself into, um, Rogers, which is a great program and it's all around the nation actually, but it's one here I'm in Wisconsin and they have several outposts mm-hmm. and they do dual diagnosis treatment. So if you have had substance abuse in the past, they, they, they of course, you know, they focus on that, but they do not do it through a 12 step model. However, their main focus is on trauma, OCD, psychiatric breaks, like all of, and so when I got in there, I was treated like a patient who needed to get well. And it, it really saved me because I actually think I went back into a child state mm-hmm. when I was in that treatment. Like I let the nurses take care of me. I wore my fuzzy socks around. I colored coloring books. I'm talking like 
almost like immersion therapy that they do for traumatized Mm. kids. You know, as adults, they put you back in a place where people are just going to feed you a waffle and take you and you have a schedule and it's like outside time is now. And now it's inside time. I swear to fucking God, it was the most healing thing I've ever done. And I would never have done that had I not broken so completely. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful for it because that's what happened last year. It was a year ago, right now, right? Like now this week, next week, the last, I don't even know the exact dates because I don't do dates anymore with sobriety or anything. I just, am like, I'm in recovery and I'm all about it now. So now, it, I mean, they gave me psychiatry. They gave me, a, you know, I got a trauma therapist. I learned how to relate to the, you know, people around me in a different way. I, I learned not to absorb everything. Like it's actually making me unsafe in the moment because I realized I was in fight or flight more than I ever had before. And I, I I've been in that my whole life. That's something I didn't work through in ACOA before because I thought I'm not really in that state. I'm, you know, I'm not always like amped up. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So that's, that's in a nutshell. That's in a nutshell. What happened? I'm grateful for all of it because I'm here. I just think the reality of it is, is that it takes, it takes some time for that shit to come up. It comes up when it's ready to come up and it does. It does. And I feel like, you know, you being in recovery, me too. And I've done it the 12 step way. And now I'm doing mm-hmm. it a little bit of a different way. I'm doing it more of, um, uh, people would maybe call it a woo woo way, but I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of mind, body, spirit things. And I'm doing it more with personal therapy. It's just what w- is working for me right now. And, uh, medication. I'm not ashamed to talk about that either. I mean, I'm, I've been saved by good psychiatry and good diagnoses that I didn't even know I had before, which is PTSD. Didn't even know I had that and proper, proper dosing and medication and management of it. Like before I was just with the primary doctor being like, do you want some Prozac? You know, which is what they do. And they're not qualified to do any of that shit. No, no shade to anyone who's doing that. I did it too. Cause I just was desperate, but man, it, it's different when you can get real, real help, you know? So yeah, but you being in recovery, me being in recovery, we know this is what I was going to get talk about initially. We know that we can kind of cover things up with humor. And also um, we're very good when like you and I both grew up in families where we had to hide a lot and we were, we were made secret keepers from a very early age. We were parentified at a very early age, had to be wise beyond our years, as they say of so many dysfunctional families, children you know, you're wise beyond your years. You're so, oh my gosh, you're just so emotionally intelligent. You're like, no, I just know how to take care of other people's emotions to make myself feel safe or to survive. And in many of our cases, just fucking survive. And so I, I realized at this break last year that I had been I had really been covering a lot of things up with humor, even my own childhood experiences mm-hmm. in the Kobu. Um, and just being like, yeah, but it's all good now. It's like, it's not all good now. It's not, you know, I'm in my upper forties and it, and it's, it's not all good. And that's okay. That's, that's when you do the work, when you're saying it's all good, there's no room in there. There's not a crack for the light to get in. You're just putting up that wall and saying, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, the I'm fines were killing me. Fine is fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. That's what I've heard. It's an acronym. 100%. exactly exactly 
I just found a second grade report card of mine. And the teacher described Andrea has a very adult-like way of expressing herself with her peers. That is what I got too. That is such an adult child trait to be super mature at an early age. I don't know if you did this, but I very much like ingratiated myself to the teachers. And I was very much like, I did, I went that route because I felt so unsafe at home. There was like a lot of violence and stuff going on and just, and I also went to 13 different schools growing up because we moved constantly. My dad was an alcoholic and my mother was codependent and they just were unstable. And they also like, were so young when they joined Mm -hmm. this horrific cult. And your mom was like a, what, like 19, 20, 20, 20. She was 21 when she had me 20, when she got, can you imagine having a kid at 21 girl? I know. I, it, I, I think about it often and I'm like, you know, I really loved having a young mom in a lot of ways, but, but then when I look back, it was also like, because it was so dysfunctional, it was easier to look at her mm-hmm. as a peer. Cause mm-hmm. she was so young, it, but if she, like, if she had been my age when like I was 35 and I had my kid, which is called a geriatric pregnancy in the medical world, which thank you very much medical world for calling it that fuck you. But <laughs> I was at a totally different stage in life. You know, and so I, um, I really see my kid as a kid and I think she saw me more as someone who was growing up with them. Like they were just taking me through their journey of growing up because she looks back on that. And my dad did too, to a certain extent. And they were just like, yeah, that was some crazy times. And I'm like, that was my life. That wasn't a phase for me that like, I went crazy in the seventies. I was like, I was born two crazy people in a crazy environment. And I had no idea that it was nuts. That was my Mm. worldview. We were like, you know, not to be NPC, but we were like gypsies. We were like nomads. We were like all over the place. And so I ingratiated myself to teachers and school, anything with a routine. I was like, lay it on me. I have no routines in my life. I need a routine. And so I gravitated toward people pleasing, especially when it was in, um, like rigid group environments, church, school, anything that would tell me what to do and then follow through on what Mm, they promised. mm. So I've listened to some of cult talk. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, that's my, that's cult talk with Aaron Martin is a podcast I did years ago. I interviewed my mom and then several ex members of the Kobu. Um, and then I interviewed someone who is an ex member of the Moonies anybody remembers that. And, uh, she also wrote a book and it, it's just, it's a pretty short podcast. It's just one season, but do you want to describe just in a nutshell, what the deal with the cult was? Yeah. It was called the church of Bible understanding. And it was founded by Stuart trail in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, where Dorney park is Dorney park girl. I've been there many times. I kissed a boy in the kissing booth <laughs> at Dorney park. So yeah, where Dorney park is. And he, uh, was a basically was like a vacuum repairman and his father was very religious and he himself rejected everything about his father's religion. He was, his father was more of like a dogmatic, um, like old school. I don't know if you want to think about like the old Catholic church, but not Catholic, he was Protestant. And so Stuart, this guy, uh, grew up just like rejecting it. Like a lot of us do who are brought up in really dogmatic environments. I've, I've done the same. And he then eventually came back to a spiritual belief, but it wasn't really, I really don't ever think it was spiritual for him because he was a psychopath, but he, <laughs> he claims he came back to the real way 
which is red flag. If anyone tells you they have the real one answer, run, run. So <laughs> run. And if his name is Stuart, run twice because my God, cult leader <laughs> yeah, Stuart, exactly. like how, could we get a better name than that? Anyway, so <laughs> like we had the cheesiest leader ever. So he came back to it saying, okay, this is the way it needs to be done. There is no church. You have to live Jesus's life. You have to live exactly from the word of the New Testament, walk the steps of Jesus, give up your worldly possessions, um, go out every day, try to save new lambs of God. You are the shepherd. It was like putting the life of Jesus into action was his mission statement. But what his real mission was, as is every cult leaders, is to control a group of people who um, will will follow your teachings, worship you as the one conduit to God and make you money and also provide you with women eventually. So that's what he did. So he set up, um, you know, this whole thing where everyone had to live communally. He was like, come to God. We love you. Cults can really suck you in because they are really beautiful things. Like there's community. And I mean, I really... I do have really good memories of like all the women taking really good care of us. Like the women in that environment are the saving grace for me because I felt really cared for by them. And I felt really threatened by the men, which has carried throughout my life. It was something that turned into just a money-making scheme and control. And, you know, everyone ended up being in a, in a, in a carpet cleaning business. The men went out and worked like a hundred hours for free slave labor. The women went out and took care of the children, took care of the lofts we lived in. Cause we eventually all moved to Manhattan. We were in Baltimore for a time, moved to Manhattan, lived in the Bowery district. And, uh, everyone was just doing his bidding. Meanwhile, he was buying private mm-hmm. planes, living in a very affluent area of New Jersey, you know, just living a completely different life. Cause the cult leader doesn't mm-hmm. live with the member. I mean, the cult leader makes their living off of mm-hmm. the members and the members aren't members. They're, they're enslaved. Mm-hmm. They're enslaved people. They're in they're, They just don't know it. You know? So that was, that was the environment. I think what eventually drove my parents out and what my mom will talk about um, is Stuart, the man himself just being so obnoxious and her seeing through him. But I will say, and I've never interviewed my dad and now he did pass away this year. So I I will never get the chance to have him on a podcast. Um, But his reason for leaving was more so like he was exhausted so much. He was like, just, he was just fucking exhausted with it. It's, it's interesting. They, they were deep in for a time after they had me and after a lot of people had kids in this cult is when they started to break mm-hmm. away though. And that's why the Kobu Stewart um, running it after my parents left, it was like the great exodus of like 1978, all these families left. And then I ended up growing up very close to all these ex members my whole life. I'm still close to them. So it's not that you, you, you don't really leave. You leave the leader, but you, you carry the trauma and you often carry the people because you need them because other people think you're crazy Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of shame around it, around talking about it, you know, getting sucked into something like that. So you, you typically carry those people with you. However, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. What was I getting to? Who knows? Oh my God. Andrea. What was I? So it was, but anyway, my dad left because he was exhausted. My mom left because she was like kind of fed up with Stuart, but 
but oh and then after that this is what i was gonna say they they left because they had families all of those families you know again close to now after that the kobu became a place where you couldn't have children he banned having children which is what teal swan is doing in her documentary that we just watched she's banning her inner circle from having relationships Mm -hmm. or children that's that could be a, a really dire path that leaders go down. And it's also a desperate move that cult leaders go down when they're losing grip of their community. They're like, no more relationships outside of your relationship with me, because you're going to talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you guys are going to be talking about me and you're going to leave and definitely no kids because that kid's going to start to get into social institutions like school or something. And, and you're going to start to be around other people. So kids are also a conduit to the outside world. So anyway, I, I feel like we were, we were very lucky that we were able to leave during that time. And a lot of people were waking up and my parents were part of that, but they weren't, they were like, my mom talks about it now. And I think she's not maybe completely clear on how sucked in they were. And nobody is when you're in it. You're not, you're just not, you're not clear about when you're drinking Mm -hmm. too much until afterwards. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like the same kind of, it's the same kind of thing you're in so deep. And, and when you get out is, only when you see how deep you were in. So when did you have the awareness at what age did you have the awareness of like, Oh, my parents were part of a cult and they left when I was four immediately, immediately. That's all they talked about. That's all they, that's all they talked about. That's all we hung out with. Those were the kids at my birthday parties. Um, you know, all the ex members, we, we lived in Pennsylvania. They all pretty much everyone went back to Pennsylvania, which was like the origin of the place. And we were just families would get together. We would go to churches and feel very out of place. There's nothing like trying to find a a regular church (laughs) after you've left a cult. Cause number one, you're totally suspicious of like every fucking human in the world. And I still, I carry that with me too. Like the suspicion is turned on at all times. And that's something I have to really regulate because trust can be hard when you feel like, it, it was, it was broken in such a hardcore way with your spirit. And that's what they felt. And then I felt it too, through them, you know, like they'd be like, don't trust anyone. Like I grew up very like anti-government, anti-everything, like rich people are evil. The president is a motherfucker, no matter who they are. Like all this, <laughs> I, I've had to work through so much shit because my parents were like, we believed in something too. And look where it got us you know? And it, yeah, I don't know. So I've always had the awareness. It was very like anti, you know, however, then we just went on to be crazy Pentecostal people mm. because they were the most like the cult we had left. Mm. So we went on to be like super Pentecostal tambourine shaken in the aisles, hands in the air, speaking in tongues. Every, st- every state we moved to, we'd find the craziest church there and join it. You know, the, the other ones were, were, were too, you know, it was too scary to join something normal. So I went to whack job schools. I went to whack job churches. I was always aware of the cult influence. It was never, it was never a secret, never a question. So there was that. However, I never talked about it to anyone until I was an adult. So I was a secret keeper of it. What do you think in within your parents and their upbringings, what do you think drew them to that? It was completely opposite and you can hear more about it in my podcast, but completely opposite reasons. They would have never met had they not met 
in an oppressive control group. <laughs> like it would not have run into each other in regular life. My dad was an adult child of two alcoholics and he had been abandoned by his parents early in life. And he was raised by every other relative that he could name. So he was moved around constantly and he recreated that with me, mm-hmm. you know, except I was with my dad and my mom doing it. He was with just all different relatives. And he finally was with his grandmother when he was 14 or 15, dropped out of school in Florida, uh, safety Harbor, Florida. And he ran away to California with his friend and his mom was out there and she really was just a distant, you know, kind of person. And she really didn't take him in and care for him, but it was just somewhere for him to run to. And out there is where, I mean, it was the, it was the hippie days. My parents were huge. My dad, my mom and my dad's hair were both done to their waists when they got married. I mean, they were those people like all of our pictures look like um, you would look at our pictures and be like, were they in a cult? Like yeah. for sure, for sure. It was like you, just the, just the visual of my parents, you know, or were they like, you know, bombing buildings as hippies because yeah. they, they really look like they were the exact replicas of what you would see as a caricature of, of a hippie in the mm-hmm. early seventies. And, and so he was just like wandering and you know, like aimless. And of course that is when, when you have, when you have this, you know, like mixed up home life and no one caring for you and you're, you're kind of on your own and you're just wondering what your purpose is in life. Perfect time for someone to approach you and ask you, do you know our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ? Have you devoted your life to him? You're a sinner. Get on your knees. I mean, perfect timing for him. Suck my dick. (laughs) Yeah. Suck my dick and give me $20. And do you know how to clean a carpet? Because you're about to do that for about five straight years. (laughs) Nonstop. And not nonstop. Get ready for the chemicals. Yeah. Get ready to be spoofed on Seinfeld. It's all happening (laughs) because that actually happened. The cult I was in was spoofed on Seinfeld. Oh, really? I don't do you, I don't know if you've ever watched Seinfeld. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. I, well, some people are just like non Seinfeld people at this day and age. And I'm like, I don't I'm know. I'm a Larry who. David freak. Curb Your Enthusiasm oh, is like my favorite show. So. I am Larry David. Me too. My, He's on my vision co- board. In the core of my being, if I could act like that, I think I would have no more chronic pain or trauma. I think it would all be released if I could just be Larry David and just tell people like, you're ridiculous. The two people on my vision board are Larry David and Kristen Wiig as Target Lady. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Target. Do, do you think that that was really going to make a guy like want to fuck me? I should like put that in my dating profile. Like I have Larry David and Kristen Target Lady on my thing. You should just legit start wearing a red vest around for the name tag. I think that would attract the boys. Oh, did you wait? So have you seen the yep. one where Ben Affleck was in it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I have. Yeah. That is amazing. It's it's the best. It, it is, is the amazing. best. Oh my God. Seriously. But, oh, oh, back to the Seinfeld. The Seinfeld <laughs> spoofed the Kobu in one episode. Um, it was the sunshine carpet cleaning business episode when George, watch it. he, because what, what the Kobu did is they had, it was called the Christian brothers carpet cleaning service. And it was le- a legit business, but of course it was tax-free because mm-hmm. as you can do, you can get tax-free if you declare something at church. That's why Kanye West is our next cult leader. (laughs) I've been saying it for four years. No one's listening to me. No one is listening to me. He is going to get out of taxes. Okay. 
I'm so ADD and your, You're good your listeners are understanding that now because I could just go. And guess direction. what? They are all ADD too. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's, let's be on this ride together. Yes. So, but the Seinfeld episode was about um, the, how you could get like the cheapest carpet cleaning from this business because it's a cult and they try to recruit you when they come into your home. That's exactly what the Christian brothers carpet. I wonder how they was. found out about it. Like uh, it was the biggest carpet cleaning service oh, in really? Manhattan for a long wow. time. Yeah. It was like huge. Would they go clean Joe Zarin's rugs? Uh, probably, mm-hmm. probably they did business. They had huge corporate accounts because they could underbid everyone. Why? Because they weren't paying anyone. <laughs> they didn't pay their workers. Exactly. <laughs> They're just praying away the pay, you know? So it, it, so this whole spoof was like, they told George, like, it's a cult. Like you can't bring them into your house. Like they're going to try to recruit you. And they came and they cleaned his rugs and they didn't even want him. Like they, ha- they didn't even want to recruit him <laughs> Like after meeting him. And he was so pissed off. So he offended. Was like, <laughs> he was so offended that the cult didn't, didn't try to recruit him. <laughs> it so was good. so funny, but I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, that was my dad walking into those places like the crazy person. So yeah. Anyway. So then my mom grew up in a really traditional environment and was, um, I would compare her upbringing to Sally's and Mad Men. So she was like Don Draper's kid. Mm -hmm. She never really knew her dad. Her dad was very professional. Her dad was a traveling salesperson. He was um, distant. He he was stable, never left the family in a lurch, you know, never did anything like crazy to ruin the family, family's reputation. He was just a distant person. Her mother was Episcopalian. And that's what she grew up in Episcopalian, which is like Catholic light, yeah, you know, to me. yeah. Episcopalian, which is, you know, a lot of rituals and traditions, but again, very stable home environment, but she always felt very different. And she was just a child of the sixties. I mean, she was a rebel. She was like busting out of the establishment. That was her path. And so I think more for her, joining the group was like a rebellion. Whereas my dad was more of like a coming home. So they had different reasons for joining it. And when they met, I think that those opposite opposition, yeah. yeah, the opposite attracting thing is really real opposites attracting rather, but it, it, it's interesting to think about it because they had no real business being together ever. I'm glad they are. Cause I'm here. I'm glad yes. they were, you yes. know, like I'm, I, d- I don't wish that I wasn't here, but it's, I-, I do know that they were very toxic for each other. How old were you when they got divorced? I was 21 when they got okay. divorced. And was um, your dad's my- drinking always bad? So here's the thing. It was a secret. Mm. It was like a, it was like a real secret. And he was a real dry drunk a lot of the times because he had to work or he had to, you know, just like hold down a daily life. Mm-hmm but he was angry. And so there was a lot of violence in the home, never at us physically, um, but around us. So think like our, almost every possession I've ever had has been destroyed. I'm a real hoarder now because of it. You know, I, I don't Mm -hmm. have things from my childhood. They were sold for drugs or they were, um, I can very much relate to like Brittany on love after lockup when she talks. I want her on my podcast. So fucking you should, you should call her up. I bet she would come on. She's, she's very cool. So she like her story of her parents, like selling her like quarters Mm -hmm. or her coin collection. Mm -hmm. Like I very much relate to that, you know? So it was always going on, but it was never like, 
made clear and it was never discussed clearly. So I didn't understand what was happening. I just knew that my dad would take off. We wouldn't be able to make rent. We wouldn't see him for like sometimes like a week or a month and his work would be calling. They'd eventually fire him and we'd have to move. And I think when looking back, he was really on a bender. I know he was doing drugs. I, the alcohol, I think, um, became something that he was more dependent on in later life, much like me, much like me, you know, so like, like his developed more in his forties, I think mm-hmm. mine was more in my thirties, mm-hmm. you know, when he divorced my mom, cause they were married so young when they got divorced. Like when I graduated high school, my mom was 38. Wow. You know? My dad was 40. So they were, so then I went to college and next thing I knew they were getting divorced, but they had really been broken up my whole life, just sort of like off and on living together and dragging me places. So it it was such a weird situation. But after that is when, you know, everyone started looking at what had happened before as just a phase. And when I say everyone, I mean, my parents, where did that leave me? Those were my formative years. And so I just was supposed to shake it off too, but I didn't have any prior experience like they did. They had lives before that 20 years and I didn't, you know, that was my 20, 21 years. And so I put it aside. I became very driven, was super, super good. You know, I was, I did very well in school. I did, you know, I got a career, I did well, but I started imploding. I started imploding. I couldn't, I couldn't be successful without being guilty. I Mm -hmm. couldn't um, have relationships without pitying them Mm. and wanting to save them. Mm. Like, cause I wanted to like, look for someone who needed help. And I realized that was from now looking back from helping my parents. I mean, one of the things with, with an adult child is confusing pity with love Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. girl. Uh, that should be my t-shirt that I wear around. Like, I confuse pity. <laughs> New with love. So, like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like pity equals love with like a slash through it does not equal, you know, cause I, I just did the, a lot of that in my twenties and um, I didn't even process it, did not even process what I was doing or, or what I, what was even happening. I just knew that my family had just like exploded and, but it was, it was a weird family before. And I didn't really like, I didn't know how to talk about it. Other people be like, Oh, like I met my husband in my twenties. And he was like, you know, I'm from Milwaukee and here's my parents. And, you know, here's my, here's my brother and sister. And yeah, you know, I played basketball and yeah, I went to school and da, da. And I'm like, okay, I'm not, I don't have a stat sheet like that. I don't even know where to begin. So then I would just sort of not begin. I would just yeah. <laughs> not, <know>? begin. <laughs> not begin and not middle and not end it. I would just pretend that I was normal too. And it worked for a while until it didn't. I'm just letting you know that I'm totally going to create a t-shirt that has that <laughs> for my store. Just so I'll give you credit, but I'm going to fucking make well, it. Well, thank uh-huh. you. Yeah. Pity does not equal love. Yes. Oh my God. A- hashtag adult child. Yeah. yeah. We, I, put me on the list. I'm buying the first one. Okay. okay. Please. I'm, I'm wearing it like <laughs> a lot in public to school pickups. Yeah, everything. please. Yes. So when did you start to come to terms with all this stuff? Was it when you got sober initially? I think it was really when I got sober. It was after I had a child, um, after I decided to really get sober because I was, I was seeing my drinking as just something I became dependent upon to live life. Not something that was fun or that I would just, were you a daily drinker? 
I became one. Uh-huh. And that was when I was um, staying home with a young baby and com- felt completely isolated and I could not deal. And I did not know how to talk about it because what my MO had always been before was pretend, act as if. Mm-hmm. And I had different versions of myself. I had a public mm-hmm. version um, at work. I had a private version with some friends. I had a home version. I had a family version. I had a mom version. I had a dad version. Like I was never the same person with everybody. And it just broke me. And so I was numbing out to that when I was so tired and depleted and loving my baby girl so much. My heart was going to break. Also, what can happen, and I don't know if you've talked to other people, but other parents about this, but as an adult child, when you have a child, you get really fucking angry at yeah. your parents. You can get really angry because you look at this, you look at this little baby and mm-hmm. as they grow and you think what a precious gift mm-hmm. and, and, and also it's the, I don't deserve this. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't deserve something so perfect. And it, I'm, I'm, this is like, mm-hmm. this is too much for me. It's too much love. It's too much love. And I don't, I don't do well with too much love. I don't want too much of it. So that is overwhelming. And then you think, oh, this, this is the feeling of being a parent. And then you think, what the fuck was wrong with my parents that they didn't. And, and that that's unfair. Cause of course they, you know, I know my parents loved me and did the best they could. I do. However, it brings up a lot of fucking anger. Mm-hmm. It can, it mm-hmm. does it with everyone. It did with me. And that's when I found myself daily drinking. And I was like, what am I doing? This is like, I didn't even understand why. Of course I didn't because I wasn't processing any emotions. I was numbing them. Mm-hmm. So that's when, yeah, I was 38. I was 38. So I'd, I had my daughter at 35. I was 38 when I got sober and really dove into the program and really developed a community. And then, you know, all through that until yeah, COVID hit. So my, one of my therapists, I had her on, um, same mm-hmm. thing happened to her. It was when she was holding her first baby. And that's when everything came up for her. So it's very it's wild. And the other thing too that can happen is like um, at certain ages, when your kid is a certain age as to when you experience certain trauma, like that also can bring the shit up too. That's uh, that's something that is so true. And I talked to my therapist and my psychiatrist and my pain, my pain psychologist. I have a, it takes a village and I got a village around me guys. And I encourage everyone to have one. So I, I talked to them all about that, how my daughter is right now. Um, she's going to seventh grade and fifth, oh sixth, and now seventh <laughs> coming up. I mean, so traumatic for me when I look back oh. on what, what was going on in my parents' lives at that time. Hence mine, a lot of, a lot of violence in the home with just tearing things apart, Christmas trees coming down, um, coffee cups being thrown at our heads, you know, a lot of stuff was going on in those particular years. And I think it, it was, we were just at the apex of a, of a really hard time. And I was at the apex of hiding a lot of things because for God's sake, I was going into middle school. And the only thing you want in middle school is to be normal and for nobody to think you're different, you know? So like, you have to be just fit in. fitting in is like the goal, right? The absolute goal. And as my daughter has entered this stage over the past few years, this is when I've been cracking up, you know what I mean? And hitting my like Mm. deep stuff. And Mm. it was during, and she was hitting the stage during quarantine Mm -hmm. and she was becoming, I don't want to 
I'm not going to talk specifically about her, but like, I think it's, I think it's just really, really essential to get your kids early intervention too. I wish I would have had it, but, you know, seeing signs in her of just really wanting to isolate even after we could go outside again. And that was true for a lot of kids, but it was bringing weird stuff up in me as an adult child weird. Cause it was exactly like your therapist or plenty of people said at that same age as I was when I was all fucked up. I don't know, man. It's like, it's like you're in the field. This is the analogy I think of you're like, you're on a farm. And when you're in the field, you're, or you're in the cornfield, you're in the stocks, you know, you're, you're a children of the corn. So you're, you, you can only see a little bit in front of you behind you. Maybe you can like jump up a little bit and you can see the farm. Like you can see the outlying areas, but when you get a little bit of recovery and when you can get some therapy, I think, and for me also, again, medications mm-hmm. and psychiatry, you can slowly start rising up out of that cornfield. And the higher you get, you can see how everything fits together. Mm-hmm. And like, you can see the pet, you can see the landscape. And so some people call it, it's call it like putting the story together or seeing the mm-hmm. patterns in your life. Mm-hmm. I see it as like seeing the land. Mm. like this, like this whole farm, this whole thing is my life. I'm, I'm, I'm using farms because guys, I'm in Wisconsin and <laughs> girl, I, that's, that's around me. And so I see it every day. And I just think you rise above and you're like, okay, that, that is just the cornfield. There are many other things going on in this, on this working farm, you know, but I, but I couldn't see that for a long time. I'm going to inherit a farm one day in central Illinois. So Oh, you are. Can Maybe I? Maybe I should join Farmers Only. Uh, you don't have to be lonely <laughs> at FarmersOnly.com. Yeah, totally. Okay. Well, I then if you are, then let's go ahead and take a uh, hot air balloon, Dorinda Medley style, right above that Please. thing. And look at the property. Oh my God, she needs to fucking go to rehab. Um, <laughs> she's the she's the one housewife who I truly want her to find help. I'm totally serious when I say that. And I never call anyone else an alcoholic or an addict. She is in so much pain. Dorinda Medley. Oh, guys. And we're talking about housewives now because I cover them and cover other things on my regular yeah, podcast. I'm but I'm a housewife freak too. Uh, you know what? I, I think it's reckless yeah. for Bravo to have her on, frankly. I think it's I an do too. That's why they put her on pause because they knew she has an issue. And that's why she didn't want to know. That's why she told Andy Cohen, I don't want to know the reason. If it doesn't change the outcome, I don't want to know the reason. That's something I would have done if I didn't, mm-hmm. when I knew I had a problem. So I have two, two things that I want to discuss. I want to talk about what healing has really looked like for you over the past mm-hmm. year, what stuff has come up. And then I'm curious how you've navigated this past year as it relates to your daughter, because, mm-hmm. you know, yep. like there, I'm sure that there's some guilt there and it's like, Tons. how do you navigate this situation to where you're not overburdening her? But then at the same time that like, she at least, you know, like, how do you have healthy conversations like of what is going on as opposed to like, just not talking about it at all and letting her fill in the blanks. So I'd be curious about that as well, but let's start with healing. And, and if you've had, what have been the significant ahas for you? The significant ahas for me were, um, and I know I'm harping on it, but truly being taken care of as a, as a hospital patient and looking at what I have as a real medical issue. And I'm talking about mental health, Mm -hmm. mental health is 
that it's, it's my cancer. It's my diabetes. It's my, it's a condition. It's a, it's a disease. I, I truly feel like it's, and it's, there's no shame attached to it for me now that I've gone through it as in the more medical way. And I'm not talking about rehab. I went, I, I, I did a, like a mental health treatment. So, and, but anybody can, you know, any path gets you many paths lead to this, you know, to freedom. That was mine. So that's, that's what healing has looked like for me, treating myself as someone who is not a bad person trying to get good. As they say in AA, you're not a bad person trying to get good. You're a sick person trying to get well. And so I'd always talked that talk before and told it to people I was sponsoring, all that stuff. I never really internalized it mm. until I really broke. And now I feel like so much freedom in, in truly like mothering myself, being like, it's okay, girl, you're, you've been sick. You're trying to get well, get well, mm. you know, like you're doing great today, you're doing great sister, like, or today is rough. You know, like it, it's cause you know, it's creeping up on you. You're just having like a little bit of a, you know, a down day. Your illness is, is, you know, maybe like, like you need a little bit of a break today. You need to get an ice pack and go lay down. You need to watch like three, uh, serial killer documentaries in a row because oddly that calms me, you know, like I, I have a self-care menu, you know, pinned up in my office. Like I, <laughs> like I, I have things that I do. Watch Downton Abbey. Uh huh. Watch Downton Abbey. Hold ice sure. cubes. Interesting. What's that do? I, I hold ice cubes in my hands. I'm show. I'm showing this to Andrea right now, you guys, because this this is a great listening experience. Me showing a visual. Um, personal fan. <laughs> yeah. Per, for real, fucking personal. Do you know how many personal fans I have in my life? Like Mary Payne has saved my ass. Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. There's never enough. I have three in here, and this is a room that's very small. Like I have three, one's on me, <laughs> two others are on in the ready. And I have one charging at all times because God forbid they go dead. Anyway, the power yeah, goes but, out. <laughs> but this, this is what, this is what, this is what Rogers like taught me. Cause then I, I also forgot to mention that I went to, I put myself in an outpatient, um, program afterwards, uh-huh. ment- mental health base. That was really, it was kind of like OCD you know, and, but it also it had to do with addiction. It's, it's funny because Rogers really treats addiction as just a, a subset of, of trauma. Going. That's yes. how I feel it. I think that's how I but come I, to do it now. That's my healing. That's my yeah. healing. Cause I don't want to dog out 12 step because I have, I know it saved so, my life, it but there's more my to life. it. There's more to it. I, I didn't understand what was going on because I, it, and a lot of it, a lot of the 12 step program kind of would trigger me. And I didn't admit mm. that it triggered me because it kind of would feel culty sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it was not that it ever was, but it would kind of just give me that feeling like, don't question it. Just read the book, read the book, pray, turn it over, turn it over, forgive the person. <laughs> don't let bring it go. It up. Yeah. Don't dwell, let it go. Let go and let God. And I was like, I, I, uh, I'm like, that only gets me through the first few years. Like, and now I'm like sick to my stomach and I have Mm. depression and like, whatever. I mean, yeah. So the healing has been truly treating myself like a person who is in recovery, not a person who just says they are. Mm. 
I think that that's why a lot of people with 20, 30 years are still mm-hmm. fucking miserable. Oh <gasps> God. In the rooms. Oh yeah. My and God. it's also why you people, could- I think it's also why some people can't stay sober is because they never, for me, I mean, you had an incident where obviously you were kind of early in recovery again, where you were dealing with it. But like, I think generally speaking, we kind of got to get sober and like get some footing there. But there's a lot, it's a lot deeper than that. I view my alcoholism and addiction as just a symptom of whether you want to call it trauma or the disease of family dysfunction or whatever you want to call it. But um, that's all it is. But I think we all have varying degrees to it. For some of us, you and I, like it's really fucking serious. Our life depended upon Mm -hmm. facing it. I think probably Mm -hmm. everybody has it to an extent, but some, for some people, it's just not as life or death. Agree. Right. Agree. And there's a gift in that. Hell yes. There's a gift. There's a gift in, um, really, really, you know, there's, it's called the gift of desperation, Mm -hmm. right? You know, they talk about that a lot in 12 step and, and beyond. And, and also in just even recovering and mental illness of any kind. And I actually hate even saying illness, but I mean, it is, it's like a, it's mental, it's mental health. You know, you want to be healthy. It's also just like, you know, the other side of it is health, but there is a gift in just reaching this point where you're like, I will do anything not to do this. Mm-hmm. And not everybody reaches that point. Mm-hmm. Dr. Drew talked about that when I had him on my podcast. Oh, tell yeah, me. Yeah, He was talking about that. He was like talking about just like how there's, there are certain people that can get sober and just like do the 12 steps and that's going to be enough for them but they'll never really get to that real deeper core of healing. I had a few friends in, and I I had, I have these couple of friends who, um, who I'm very good friends with from my time in AA and, you know, still to this day, but there's, there's one I can relate to on a deep, deep soul, spiritual level. And there's one who is just about the 12 steps. Yeah. So that, that's, that can be rough. Yeah. And I'm sorry if you're hearing like, oof, no, I don't oof, hear it. Oof. I don't, yeah. My little dog, Chewy is dreaming mm-hmm. of chasing a squirrel or some such or an Amazon delivery man. And he's dreaming on the couch right now. And he's going ruff, ruff, in his sleep, little baby. Oh my God. Sorry guys. <laughs> it's been interesting for me. Cause it's out of my closest girlfriends that I got sober with. I'm yeah. the only one that has really hit like a significant bottom in recovery. And there was a lot of shame there initially. Yes. But now I'm like, I don't, I feel like I've gone so much deeper though. Now it's like, I'm at a different, that's the thing, right? More will be, more will be revealed. Will be be revealed. Yeah. I can't even get it out. I feel like the more work I do on myself though, sometimes it's like even harder to connect with people. It is. I know it's good to talk to you. Keep me on speed dial because you're definitely, you're definitely in the, in the, in the same space that I am in, maybe not in the, you know, same timeline or anything, but the fact that you can be, you can, you can take care of your, of the substance that is, that you're using to self-medicate, but the illness is still there, you know? And, and I also, and I also didn't, I didn't, I didn't really accept the fact that everything I thought or did or felt or was jealous of, or held in secret or acted upon was because I was a quote alcoholic. Like I reject that, you know, I think we're all so much more complicated than that. And the substance of choice is the substance of choice, but it doesn't make you a thing. 
you know, like you're not a cancer patient, you're a human who has cancer. And I feel like the, the term even alcohol use disorder that has been more in the mainstream recently in the past few years, like I really appreciate that because it's so much, I think it's bullshit. You think it's bullshit? <laughs> I, like I it. do. I, I really like that actually for me because I just don't, I don't identify with the, with the label anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that. Yeah. It's, for, and I don't know why I, I, that's something I need to think about. Cause it's not something I'm angry about or anything. Like I would, I would freely walk into a 12 step meeting and say, hi, I'm Aaron. I'm an alcoholic. Like I have no problem with it, but it's like bigger for me now. It's just bigger. Mm-hmm. I've been saying it since I was fucking 13. I got sent to rehab for the first time in the eighth grade. You did? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So how many rehabs mm-hmm. did you get sent to or did you send yourself to? So I finally got sober at 19. But so wow. I, yeah. So eighth grade inpatient, listen to episode number four, because that goes through all my teenage years. I was a fucking hot mess express, Aaron. Yeah. So like three, by the time I got sober, three inpatients, one boarding school and about six or seven outpatients. Well, I know your time is limited, but so could you want to talk a little bit about like the daughter stuff? If you're open to sharing the daughter stuff, of course. Yeah, I can stay on. That's fine. Um, the daughter stuff has been the hardest part of this. Mm. She's, she's my heart and it's not guilt. It's what Brene Brown says is shame you know, guilt is saying I did something bad and shame is saying I am bad. Mm -hmm. And so that has been very difficult for me because the mom guilt and just being a woman and being a, being a mother who has, um, who struggles with mental health or addiction is one of the most shameful positions to have in history. And now it's not, it's not changing very much because you're the arc, it's this archetype thing. It's, it's, it's internalized misogyny. It's all of it. And, you know, I can get into it, but it, in my specific case, I, I feel the shame hinders my recovery more than anything. The mom shame, not the mom guilt, the mom shame hinders me more than anything. And it's because it is mine to move through and the more I hold on to it, the more it affects her. Cause when I am ashamed, I want to keep secrets from her. Mm-hmm. And when I am ashamed, I want her to be okay. And for her not to worry about me. So I don't want to, I don't want to burden her with anything. And when I'm ashamed also, I can go in the opposite direction and tell her too much because I want her to understand. And so I'm parentifying her in the same way I hated mm-hmm. that happening to me. So that is a struggle and I have no answers for it, except that I talk, 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 talk about it to my team, to my therapists, my, you know, I, I, um, I course correct instead of saying I did something, I made a mistake and I have to correct it. I just course correct. You know, I'm going, I find myself going down a wrong path of saying too much or too little. I course correct. Mm -hmm. I also don't, um, I don't do it. What, what happened in my abusive household, which was rage, mm. apologize, silence, rage, apologize, silence. That's what I got from at least my father. I try to say, I try mm-hmm. to not, um, I try to not just recreate that cycle by saying you can come to me with anything. And she, and she does, she said to me, heartbreaking things before, like, 
I feel like you have two, per- two personalities, mm. you know, and one scares me and one comforts me. And I've said to her in response, instead of saying kind of, you know, what probably would have been said to me, I would have never had the voice to say that first of all, ever to my parents. So I, I, I'm like, that's healthy in and of itself. When I see her questioning me and telling me her feelings about me, I am like, thank fucking God. She feels free to do that. Cause I never felt that. And so then I, it's like, I actually take that hurt, any kind of hurtful comments toward me as a strength because mm, she's, beautiful. she's freer. She's freer than me. And I want her to be the freest she can be. So when she tells me that I say, I, I don't say I'm sorry right away. I'm sorry. Oh my God, I'll do better. I don't do that. I go, tell me more. Like, what do you mean? And then I'm saying, I'm really glad you told me that. I'm really glad you told me this. You're so intuitive. You're so brave for telling me this. And you, you never have to not tell me when you're upset with me or feeling something or upset with dad or upset with school. And so she's super open with me about everything. Now that hurts, but I have to set my ego aside because my job is to free myself and then free her. That's beautiful. You're a good mom. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just taking my boat through the shame, through the shame lake. I mean, but you can do it. You can navigate it. You can do it. You can stay on top and not sink under. Mm. You can do it. So do you want to be found? <laughs> uh, girl, I think I'm already found and I think I'm already canceled a lot of places. <laughs> so it, here you go. So the funny thing is, I mean, you guys, like I really, this is my, my regular podcast is called pink shade and I have a co-host Mary Payne Gilbert, who is amazing. And we, every week cover, we're right now covering Beverly Hills housewives. We're obsessed with housewives. We, we bond over reality TV and especially the trash dumpster diving reality TV. I'm talking like 90 day fiance. I've been there since the beginning love after lockup. If you are not watching that Friday nights, we TV, go ahead and watch it. Feel better about your life. No shit. That's healing. It, the healing, let the healing begin watching love after lockup. Cause you will feel better <laughs> about your own choices. Okay. So do that. And then, um, yeah, we have Patreons that go with our pink shade podcast too, where we cover lots of other stuff, seeking sister wife, welcome to Plathville obsessed with that because it is so culty girl. I could talk about that all day and, uh, family Chantel, you know, we, we, we just cover everything. So you can find us at pink shade pod on Instagram and Twitter. We're not too active on Twitter, mostly the gram, maybe a little bit of TikTok at pink shade pod. You never know. I was just looking at it. We make it, we're, we're enlisting a teenager right now to do the TikToks for us, but they don't understand us. So we don't know how that's going to go. We might just be like old lady shamed through it. We, we don't know. Anyway, find us at pink shade pod. You can find pink shade podcast on any platform, listen to it for free. And it is just us being irreverent and joking about something worse than, you know, our reality, which is reality TV. That's what we do. It's my fave. Yay! Oh I love talking to you. This, this is great. This is awesome. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Boy, was that really fucking good. I loved that. Um, thank you again to Aaron 
I find her perspective on everything just very inspiring um, and, and beautiful. So hope y'all like that. Let me know what, what you thought. Um, do I have anything to tell you guys about? I don't think so. I do not think so. I'm trying to think if I have any fun stories. Um, another another bonus of, of joining Patreon is that you get to hear all of my cringy uh, dating stories. So that's uh, that, that's one reason to, to join. Um, you can find me, again, Adult Child Pod on Instagram, TikTok. You can email me at Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. And I will see y'all next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day. I promise. Don't let